Osiris's production on the Osiris Podcast Network. humans it's time to get down with one of the original freak albums anthem of the sun released by the grateful dead in july of 1968 this record is unrelentingly weird with melodies that twist and turn through the psychedelic murk but parts of this record feel like skinny dipping on a hot summer day The strangest bits on Anthem hint at later records like Trout Mask Replica by Captain Beefheart or Music to Eat from Hampton Grease Band. But I'm not sure if it's ahead of its time or merely of it. There were any number of landmark psychedelic records released between 1966 and 1968. There was Jimi Hendrix, The Velvet Underground, The Doors and Love, The Birds and The Jefferson Airplane. And, of course, the Beatles and the Beach Boys, whose studio work truly was game-changing. But the Dead were a little different. High-powered mutants, to borrow a Hunter Thompson phrase. An untamed band with ideas above their station and zero fear of failure. The Dead had a hard-wired inclination to fuck with the straight world as often as opportunity presented. And their record label was an easy mark. The fact that Warner Brothers kept them on the roster after Anthem is a miracle. The band racked up huge studio bills and had very little to show for it after months of messing around. What they eventually turned in was a slab of crypto blues and amputated live freakouts, spliced and superimposed in a manner that confounds reason. And I love it. But... Not everyone does. In fact, one of my co-hosts happens to think that Anthem of the Sun is a total mess. These early Dead albums are interesting to think about because aspects of the band that we take for granted have yet to fully manifest. We talked last episode about Robert Hunter not being there, and he has only one credit on Anthem. So you have other members pitching in with lyrics. And Bob Weir deserves a ton of credit for his section of The Other One, which poetically describes the transformation principle at the heart of the dead, the whole idea of getting on the bus. Lore has it that Weir finalized the Neil Cassidy verse at approximately the same time Cassidy was dying of exposure by the train tracks outside of El Paso. Weir and the band only found out about that later. To me, it's just more evidence of the hidden intelligence within the dead that operates outside the realm of conscious intent. And yet, there's still a lot of growth left to happen for this band. This season, we're going to chart that growth across eras, albums, and dimensions. But before we dive in, I want to tell you that Dead to Me is proud to be sponsored by CBD Vermont. They believe that healthy soils, strong local economies, and plant-based wellness go hand in hand. That's why they work with organic farmers across Vermont to grow the highest quality hemp and produce full-spectrum CBD extracts for wholesale. They've recently launched an online store 
where you can buy Vermont-made CBD products, including oils, capsules, edibles, and topicals that have been fully vetted by the staff at CBD Vermont. I'm thinking about moving back to Vermont just to apply for that job. CBD Vermont ships everywhere, and as huge music fans, they're offering our listeners 15% off all of their products. Go to cbdvermont.com and use the code dead to me at checkout to get 15% off. Well, what do you say we get underway? Eduardo, Kevin, let's do this. All right, so we're here to talk about Anthem of the Sun, the 1968 sophomore release from the Grateful Dead. I re-listened to this record after getting back from our two-year-old's birthday party, and toddler birthday parties are inherently psychedelic, so (laughs) that kind of set the mood, and it will probably color my report. But this really is a psychedelic record. Garcia famously said, we mixed it for the hallucinations, and Phil Lesh said, I want it to sound like a thousand lotus petals. And Tom Constantin, who got drafted by Phil to play keyboards and make weird noises on the album, called it a state of excitement, flux, and chaos. But what the fuck is thick air, Bobby? Oh, here we go. <laughs> that's, that's, what we, that's what we're here to talk about. What the fuck is thick air? <laughs> <laughs> well, for anyone who doesn't know, while they were making the record, Bob Weir apparently asked producer David Hassinger for the sound of thick air. <laughs> like, looking back, you can see some justification for thick air. My guess is that it's a combination of things like maybe the type of audio compression and the fact that there was some space in that track and Bobby just really wanted to hear what the ambience sounded like but we can't really expect an acid-eating 20-something Bob Weir to get the technical details on this right (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) but it was Bobby's thick air comment that drove David Hassinger the producer off the project and it was not a chill environment at all because Hassinger was already not getting along with Dan Healy yes who was one of the dead's primary sound guys and Hassinger said you know with this band if you argue with anybody in the entourage you're basically taking on the whole group he did say he got along really well with Jerry though which I guess is unsurprising what it all adds up to is tension in the studio or studios because they used like four of them (laughs) I mean look by all accounts this album was a train wreck to me. This was like this band going in the studio and being like, whatever, man, we can do whatever the fuck we want. This is Warner Brothers Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> I think the confusion is actually an asset. This is one of those records that sounds different every time I listen to it. It's mm-hmm. like it's like a funhouse mirror. I just can't pin this fucker down. And you can't really pin it down historically either because there are two distinct versions of Anthem of the Sun. The 1968 release mixed for hallucinations and a 1972 remix by the band. The thinking there was that they had just released Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. So maybe it made sense to sand off some of the rough edges to appeal to newcomers who had turned on to the song based stuff. But. You know, there's really only so much you can do with a psychedelic monstrosity like this. So what is the difference? Because I don't know. It is difficult because of the way that the record plays on your mind to actually be able to zero in on some of those details. Yeah, some of the studio trickerations happening here, they don't age well. But listening to this album on headphones for the first time in like a decade or two recently... Yeah, They really did put a lot of thought into like how to have sounds play across the stereo field. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it's, it's stuff that like in hindsight seems hokey because it just seems like someone 
playing around with a 60s sound except this is the 60s sound this is like legitimate yeah. you know they're not like they're not just like aping the beatles and the beach boys they're their contemporaries yeah totally and you know this is how we actually arrive at some of these sounds i mean it wasn't happening in a vacuum we talked about hendrix in the last episode and if you listen to those early experience records you can hear some of those hard panning effects on those jams too but you know on anthem of the sun there are times where the entire drum set moves over from the right side to the left side of your headphones and you know it's kind of a trip just like the kazoo is kind of a trip, which made me think, who is the John Popper of kazoo? <laughs> but, but seriously, on this record, there is a kazoo through a fuzz pedal, right? Yeah, yep. it's, a, yep. it's a staple of jug band music. And I think that's sort of them them kind of doing a little psychedelic hootenanny there. <laughs> Man, these guys are high. To your point about the Sonics here, Eduardo, I, I do want to point out it's 1968. They're not the first, second, or even a hundredth person to this plateau. Sure. All the talk about the studio magic. It was studio magic for the Grateful Dead. It was their learning experience yeah. right out in the open. Oh, sure. And I think the band has admitted that but i also think there is a deliberateness here uh anthem of the sun is the grateful dead on a relentless quest to be weird and yeah. probably at the expense of songwriting but i do think that they achieved the goal of high weirdness with the emphasis on high i mean they got kicked out of sunset sound for smoking too much pot and being totally off their rockers and this is where the doors made their records man <laughs> seriously <laughs> this is to my mind, one of the only throwaway albums in their catalog, Whoa. even though there's historical importance and then there's what the actual thing is. Well, I would say you could definitely get a better feel for what the band was like in this era from various live recordings of the time. Yeah. And I think they got backed into something of a corner here because they owed Warner Brothers a record, but they weren't really sure of how they were going to get it done and that's why they were borrowing from actual live recordings Garcia later said that making a studio album is like assembling a ship in a bottle and yep. playing live is like charting a course on the open seas and at this point in the band's history they weren't really all that dialed in to the ship in a bottle approach mm. and I'm also kind of interested in how the record actually got completed Passenger was driven mad by Phil Lesh and Thick Air and he pieced out and so it was left to Garcia and Lesh to try to land this plane and they really did collaborate together i think it represents an interesting experimental approach for the grateful dead that they really wouldn't get back to in the studio for a while oh for sure they were certainly thinking with the galaxy brain right but to you maybe they were overthinking with that galaxy brain surprise rock bands get their heads up their own asses because they have huge egos and the grateful dead certainly did they also had a huge entourage you know what they i mean did. they, they yeah. rolled into that studio with all the wives and girlfriends and hangers on and you know there were just like stories of the you know the folks who actually had to run these studios like a business you know they're getting orchestras in and they can get it done by noon the grateful dead come in and it takes them 18 hours to get a drum sound plus everyone's laying on the floor smoking tons of weed and being crazy and that represents a paradigm shift in how records are being made and you know the grateful dead weren't the sole initiators of that shift but they sure as fuck flew the flag <laughs> oh yeah i think there's a lot to like about this album from the standpoint that the performance was the mixing mm -hmm. you get the first collaboration with robert hunter right yeah and alligator yeah totally and yeah. we haven't really talked about lyrics that much on this season and that's probably because robert hunter didn't show up until just now yeah 
But there are some interesting lyrics from people not named Robert Hunter on Anthem, like this ground on which the seed of love is sown. All graceful instruments are known. That's like one of those hippie fucking quatrains that like stops you in your tracks. And that's on New Potato Caboose, co-written by Bobby Peterson, who would show up very intermittently on the lyrical side. And, you know, he's the co-writer of one of my uh, beloved dead songs, Pride of Cucamonga. (laughs) Uh, I, I have no idea why I love that song so much, but I do. You know, Peterson's friendship with Phil... Uh, They go all the way back to the College of San Mateo. So Peterson was kind of a mentor figure for Lesh and turned him on to all kinds of literature and a deeper understanding of jazz. Got him into the beats, you know, got him into some of the uh, poets of the time and, and writers like Henry Miller. So props to Bobby Peterson. And let's check out a little bit of New Potato Caboose from the 1968 Psychedelic Mix. that Bobby Peterson line. The song goes in some interesting directions towards the end, uh, gets closer to what we might recognize as a classic Grateful Dead psychedelic jam. But really, I think what many people consider to be the classic Dead leads off this album, and that's the other one. And if you know the other one, or that's it for the other one, as it's properly called, you know there are epic versions. It's called like 20 things. Yeah. And there's epic <laughs> versions. There's four, It's a four-part movement on this. It's like, I know. It's like, is this a Yes album or yeah, what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like Tales from Topographic Jerry or something. But I think the Dead actually deserve some credit in that regard because this is definitely before the prog scene started happening and you know breaking songs into those kind of subsections yeah. was a new thing 
You wouldn't find that outside of classical music usually. Yeah, I mean, they were doing it. Look, this isn't the benefit of historical hindsight. We have their whole catalog laid out before us right now if we want. So we know what this develops into and everything. And this is sort sure. of a fun song, but it feels like a throwaway off the first album. It's not. It's neither here nor there. For sure, if you know and love the other one, then the version on this record is probably something you'd rather forget, right? It just sounds defanged. There's weird production choices that kind of make it sound buried and muddled. And when you want it to really kind of hit, it just doesn't. It just sounds like it's buried under a wall of like bad decision making. <laughs> well, I actually like some of those bad decisions, but I definitely get what you guys are saying. This version never really kicks into psychedelic overdrive yes. in the way that we've come to expect from other versions of the other one across all of these different eras. And like Kevin notes, we have the benefit of hindsight. We know how this tune evolved. Yeah. It's always been something of a signifier in dead sets that the band on whatever night is willing to go pretty far out there. Yeah. Space into the wheel into the other one. I mean, that's just... What's not to love? You really have to give it to young Bob Weir, who is taking a stab at expressing something that was really, really meaningful to him. Yeah. And that is his relationship with Neil Cassidy. And the idea of Cowboy Neil at the wheel connects the Grateful Dead to the beat generation and positions them as torchbearers in just a beautiful way. And there's also like terror in it, too, because, you know, it's the story of this young kid who gets thrust into this wild, crazy world and experiences the shock and awe of those situations, including huge amounts of LSD. And let's remember that Bob Weir suffered from acid aphasia for a little while there. Yeah. He got better, <laughs> but we'll never know for sure if Bob Weir's thousand yard stare is maybe a result of those <laughs> early experiments. You know, I also really love the cryptical envelopment section of That's It for the Other One as it appears on Anthem. They didn't keep that in the set for very long, but I've always enjoyed Garcia's little psychedelic warble on that part of the track. Anyway, let's check out a little bit of That's It for the Other One.
coming around, y'all. Yeah, so there's a taste of the 1968 Mixed for Hallucinations version of the other one. And Kevin was kind of making fun of what's known as the musique concrete aspects of this record. You know, the being weird for weird's sake shit. And that's where Tom Constantine fits in. He got brought into the studio to kind of weird it up. <laughs> and there's that section where, you know, it sounds like the mix is totally getting swallowed. And then there's this sort of ambient rumbling. Apparently he threw a gyroscope inside the piano and they mic'd that up and put a lot of reverb sure. on it. Yeah, that's exactly what he was doing. But, you know, I admired the commitment to that weird vision because tape was a scarce resource back in the day. You really had to believe in your avant-garde awesomeness. Right. <laughs> Which makes this album's existence all that more confusing. Oh, come on. Now, they were pressured for the album, to be sure. They mm -hmm. did not want to make an album. Uh, they put out an excellent single. It's only like two minutes and like 30 seconds of Dark Star that had Born Cross-Eyed on it. And had Dark Star popped up on this album, maybe I'd be singing a different tune. Dark Star could fit on this album. Yeah. yeah. That's for sure. It really could. However, you know, Dark Star represents another kind of turning point in the band that opened up entire new vistas in their songwriting, and that is the actual physical presence of Robert yes. Hunter with the Dead Tribe, which is different than, say, Alligator, which was just something he had stashed away in his acid notebooks and was sent to the band via correspondence. When Robert Hunter composed Dark Star, he was actually attending a Grateful Dead rehearsal, and those lyrics appeared to him like a thunderbolt in his brain, and that sent the Dead off in a whole new direction with Robert Hunter as their primary lyricist, at least at that time. Do you guys remember when you first like heard this phase of the dead's career like when you first like is it and 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 for you guys just out of curiosity is it sort of where you started do you can did you go linearly and chronologically or like i got really into like 70s and 80s stuff and i didn't i'd been into the dead for a good long while before i think i ever heard like a clean 68 67 recording yeah i probably heard some of that stuff in passing here and there but it obviously didn't grab me my earliest memories of the dead are gravitating around europe 72 which my mom used to play on our turntable when i was a little mm. kid and i've talked about that before so when i actually did get into the dead which was well after they were an active concern i kind of had to retrace their steps to get a sense of what the musical evolution was all about mm -hmm. sort of explore where they'd come from and you know some of that happened chronologically but a lot of it was just getting pushed into the deep end of the pool on internet archive and stuff though i do suspect that there is some psychological imprinting from europe 72 like i definitely remember staring at the cover of that record and the dude with the ice cream smushed into his forehead all psychedelic like i mean that definitely makes an impression on a young child's fragile eggshell mind <laughs> but for me you know i probably didn't get a real grasp of the anthem era dead until much much later and you know what I would not recommend it necessarily as the place to start. It is the thing you hold up as the poster. Be like, see, this is why I don't like the dead. Not the shows around this time, though. That's what's interesting to me. So, like, I... Yeah. I, I obviously I've spoken to this. I came to like the dead really, really got into it through the, the, without a net release. Um, so pretty, so pretty late uh, in their career and in my uh, personal development. But then one from the vault, but it was two from the vault. And for years, that scared the shit out of me because I was like, "What is this?" Because I know this band to be this thing, and then this is something just. 
completely different. Yeah, it's freaky. And the new potato caboose from that set is mind-melting. Yeah. And so I get the frustration about Anthem, because if you have all this evidence of what the band was capable of, even in their like psychedelic monstrosity phase, and then you put on this sort of plinky experimental album, you're scratching your head going like, who even is this band? Or do these kids have any business in a recording studio? For people who have problems with this album, I, I've been harsh, but I mean, look, I, I do enjoy hearing this. And the reason I enjoy hearing it is for, for the historical record of it. The fact that like this is this is a peek into how this band developed because all bands develop. Sure. And, you know, there's one spot on Anthem where I think they really do get it right in terms of representing their sound at the time. And that is on the back half of Alligator. It really shows the psychedelic dead in full flight. Mm -hmm. And there's some sleight of hand there as well, because that portion of Alligator is actually taken from a live concert performance, which to me demonstrates the disinterest that the dead had in buckling down in the studio on the other hand they had all these live tapes and the quasi brilliant idea dawned on them to incorporate that into the studio recordings in some kind of hybrid product which is exactly what anthem of the sun turned out to be so let's check out the tail end of alligator pun fully intended
And that is Alligator. I just don't understand how you could dislike that, Kevin, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> oh, man. I think that is a great example of this prototype, like, dead 1.0 kind of phase that they were in, which is that when they were firing on all cylinders, that you just have this feeling of, like, yeah, they wear cowboy hats, but they're on a shit ton of acid and they're going to space. <laughs> yeah, these guys are on a mission and no one is in a position to stop them, least of all themselves. Yeah, I think it, it occupies an interesting space. And I think it sort of goes beyond the purely historical record. I mean, this to me is this phase of the dead is just fascinating. Yeah, and I think you've mentioned this before, but it tends to be overlooked by contemporary fans, at least the studio iterations. And you can see why. The first half of Alligator is this clunky blues jam that never really completely gels and it puts Pigpen in an awkward position of having to sell these psychedelic lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just not his style and it totally shows on the track. I mean, maybe these sounds aren't meant to go together or at the very least, the Grateful Dead hadn't figured out how to make them go together in anything resembling an elegant fashion. Yeah, no, no, I think that's exactly right. And it's something that it would take them, I think, four years to kind of figure that out. And that's the year of 72 that you alluded to in terms of how to kind of combine those. Well, in, in 72, they become a jazz fusion band that performs a country repertoire in space. You know, it's yes. like uh, Yodorowsky couldn't dream up a dead that bizarre. <laughs> I don't I don't think I can touch that. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and all you hippies will just have to google it that's uh yodorowsky with a j <laughs> but look you know it's clear that the grateful dead had some places to go yet you know looking ahead to to the album we're going to be talking about next week oxamoxoa yeah i sort of view the two together as kind of a, a combined like yin and yang yeah. or almost like different essays on the same set of ideas subject acid <laughs> <laughs> And that's it for this episode of Dead to Me. Be sure to come back next time. We'll be talking about Oxamoxoa. And listeners, don't forget to go to cbdvermont.com and use the code Dead to Me at checkout to get 15% off. Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer Kevin Hill. See you next time.